It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Today, I am bringing back a subject that has been teased for a long time now. Any long-time listeners here of This Might Get Uncomfortable will know what I'm talking about. I, I tend to foreshadow and tease, like the best directors out there, of course. Who am I kidding? Actually, you know what? I, I For a little time, I wanted to be a director in my life, Whitney. You and I have a, a shared film background from school, but I think with the foreshadowing I'm talking about, it's something that it's really been on my mind for a long time, and I kind of keep getting interesting quotes and perspectives and seeing interviews and videos pop up. It's interesting in life, I think, sometimes when you have something that might be brewing in your subconscious or something that you're just kind of daydreaming about and you see the serendipity of life reflect it back to you in so many forms. So recently, I had the pleasure of seeing a quote. I'm going to see if I can turn my my broken body around to see if I can read the quote on my wall. And the the quote actually, I've never quoted this person on the podcast before. His first time for everything is the actor Terry Crews. And Terry Crews had this quote that I saw that he said, sometimes your greatest dreams must be destroyed to make way for something better. And this has really just got me ruminating a lot. You know, Wit, we've talked about dreams in the past. We've had this subject, I think, interspersed naturally through our conversations with some of the amazing artists and content creators and entrepreneurs we've had here on the show and their journey. But I, th- I think this idea of dreams is interesting because it, it's a double entendre for me. It's number one, I think in the context of what I'm talking about with Terry Crews, it's this idea of these visions that we have, right? These intentions that we want to manifest, this version of our life that we hope to create one day that one would cat- categorize under dreams. But I think actual dream dreams that we have while we're sleeping is also a super fascinating subject. And I want to dive into that today because I'm in a, boy, I'm in a curious place where sometimes I wonder, and I want to throw the ball back to you, Whitney, because this is maybe a good a good way to kick this off. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric, I think, out in the world when it comes to success coaches or mindset people or, or I don't know, life and wellness people, the people you and I tend to associate with. It's like, never give up on your dreams. Keep going. You know, don't never say, you know, Goonies never say die. <laughs> There's a whole lot of phrases out there of like why we should never give up on our dreams. But maybe there are times when it is appropriate to give up on our dreams. And the question to me becomes always, how do we know whether to keep going with something in life or whether to give up? Because I think giving up has this super negative stigma around it. You know, there's so, so much negativity around like, never give up, don't give up, keep pushing till you make your dreams come true. But maybe sometimes it is appropriate to give up. And I, I'm curious how that hits you, Whitney, in terms of how do we know whether to keep pushing and keep striving versus like, you know what, this is not my thing anymore. And maybe it wasn't ever meant to be my thing. Maybe I'm not going to make it to the NBA, says 15-year-old Jason, and walks away. It's interesting because I, I know that you've been wanting to talk about dreams for a while, and I thought that you literally meant dreams, like sleep dreams. <laughs> so it's interesting to hear you talk about this. And I'm glad that you finally feel like you can because we've had a lot of more curated episodes recently as we went through the whole Take Charge series and talked about the consistency code and all of that. And it is fascinating to reflect on this 
while we're in the midst of promoting the consistency code, as we have been not just in recent episodes, but on social media. And I've been just thinking about different ways that we can explore what it means to be consistent. And that often leads me to examining people's relationships with the things that they're doing and why they're doing it. Because there's kind of different ways to look at our choices in life. It's sometimes we feel like we don't have a choice. Sometimes we feel like we do have a choice. Sometimes we have big goals and we think if we work hard enough, we'll get them. And sometimes we have big goals. And to your point, Jason, no matter how hard we work on them, the chances of us actually achieving something are very, very slim. And, and sometimes that's simply because the odds are working against you for whatever reason, whether there's a lot of competition in something, or perhaps it's just that the requirements make it, in some cases, literally impossible. Like your age could could be a reason why you could or couldn't do something, right? And, and if you're too old, you're never going to get that chance again. Unlike when you're too young, you kind of just wait your turn. And it's interesting too to examine this during COVID because one thing that's really fascinated me it is on TikTok, a lot of younger people, people that are in college, for example, have been talking about how incredibly challenging it has been to go through a pandemic at that age. And this is the time of their life that they've been looking forward to for so long. This is the time where everybody's been telling them like, oh, just wait till you get to college. Like college is so great. And you're going to, you know, you can finally do what you want and have your freedom. And then suddenly the college experience has changed so much. And some of these kids are thinking, wow, like it's being taken away from me. I may never be able to have that experience I've been looking forward to my whole life because the pandemic changed everything. And I think that's also the case for a lot of people examining how the pandemic changed their travel plans, changed their relationships, changed the holidays, changed the way that they were doing things. Maybe some people set themselves up for success. I mean, my heart goes out to people who opened a restaurant, for example, right before the pandemic hit. And it's like, oh shit, like how are they possibly going to succeed? And some of them have made it through. Some of them have have held on or some cases even thrived. Great example is last night I got takeout from Pura Vita's, or as Jason would say, Pura Vita, uh, their pizzeria, which I think that opened during COVID. And it was so busy. It They were like 10 minutes behind in my order. There were all these people eating outside. There was all these takeaway orders. It was unbelievable what they have done. Now, granted, they already had established themselves with their restaurant, which is literally next door to the pizzeria. But still, even to see that they have two businesses and they're vegan, they are thriving right now. And that's super exciting. So there's certainly examples of how people can overcome all the odds and get what they want. And some people feel like they've been waiting their whole life for something and it doesn't work out for them for some reason. I mean, you see things like Olympic stories, like people that have been working their whole lives to get into the Olympics and then one false step, literally sometimes, causes them to lose their chance at the Olympics. And because of how infrequent the Olympics happen, they may literally never get a chance at that again. And so there are certainly examples in life where 
we can't control whether or not our dreams come true. And there are also times where we might feel like we have control, but no matter how hard we try, it's not working out the way that we want to. And then we start to internalize that and get into a place of self-blame. So then the question becomes, whatever happens, whatever circumstances led you to this point of wondering, should you give up on your dream or do I have to give up on my dream? I mean, I think it's such an individual decision. There's, There's really no right or wrong choice there. Like You have to decide as a person, are you okay with that? And if you are kind of forced to give up on your dream, then (laughs) maybe it's a relief. Maybe you just go through that mourning process and you say, all right, well, for whatever reason, this was taken away from me and now I just have to deal with it and and pivot my life. I think it's it's interesting, this idea of failing at your dreams to only have something better come along. And it's it's almost like a slippery slope to me, Wit, because... The two examples I can think about that I have seen come up online recently, so they're fresh in my mind, is Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, talking about his his original dream, which was to be an NFL player and, and to be a successful NFL player. And he played college football at the University of Miami. I believe Dwayne Johnson also played a little bit in the Canadian Football League, if I'm correct. But of course, in 1995, he made his debut in the World Wrestling Federation, WWE now, and the rest is history, as they say. But, you know, his post, we could probably find it and link to it on his Instagram account, was this whole thing of like, you know, I never made it to the NFL and my dream never came true. And kind of talking about how life redirects you. And now, of course, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and is the most famous action star in the world right now, right? So it's this thing of like, hey, you know, this thing may crush you, but on the other side of it is something incredible and amazing beyond your wildest dreams. It was kind of the nature of his post. And I've also seen Lewis Howes post similar things of him being injured and having his dream as a professional athlete and you know sleeping on his sister's couch and having no money. And now, of course, Lewis is a millionaire and a very successful host of the School of Greatness podcast and all the things he does. But it's almost like Whitney, these examples of Dwayne and Lewis exist in a very narrow vacuum of people that can say yeah it's it's cool that your dream didn't come true and you might be devastated for years but look at me i'm rich and famous and influential hey it all works out it's like maybe it does maybe it does maybe it doesn't you know in the sense that maybe there are people who put years or decades into a dream and they don't accomplish it and maybe they have to and there's nothing wrong with this you know work at the neighborhood convenience store or drive for uber or not have the result that a Dwayne Johnson or a, or a Lewis Howes get. You know what I mean? It's like some people, maybe your dreams die and there's not this proverbial pot of gold, so to speak, at the end of your rainbow. You know, And, and so it's, it's a bit of a, it's not a disingenuous example because it clearly happened for them. But do you know what I'm trying to say with this? It's almost like, yeah, there's something amazing coming. But sometimes when your dreams are dying and you give something up, you can't count on like, okay, for all of this suffering, I'll be rewarded someday. Like th- that's really the heart of this. It's it's a very, that's a dangerous thought of like, and I'm saying it because I've thought it too, through all of the pain and suffering I've been through with this injury of like, hey, maybe karmically because I'm suffering so much, God, universe, spirit, life will reward me for my suffering. And so I feel in some ways the messages that Dwayne and Lewis and people like that put out there is like, don't worry, you'll be rewarded for your suffering and your dream dying. Don't worry, you will. But there's there's no guarantee of that. 
And I think that my first instinct is that, well, in some way, as Corbett Barr said when he was on our show, which I keep forgetting when that episode's coming out. Oh, that's coming out this week, <laughs> two days. Okay, good. So this is a nice tie into an upcoming episode as a little teaser and an encouragement for you to subscribe, listener, if you have not yet to the show. So you'll be notified when we have new episodes, which are every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And Corbett's episode is is really wonderful. And one of the things that he said that resonated with me is how it benefits somebody like Lewis House to tell you that, oh, don't worry if things don't work out the way that you planned, because that means something's better for you is coming. It benefits him because you're comforted by him, number one. And and many of us want to be comforted when we're going through something really challenging like that. But secondly, you know, that's a great marketing strategy because he can say, I'll show you how, you know, I'll show you how to pivot. I'll show you how to do what I did and all of that. And I think like the cynical side of me sees it that way. And listen, it's a marketing tactic. It's nothing to do with Lewis as a person. This is something many people do. And I'm sure you and I have done this too, Jason. We we share our stories and we explain how we overcame them. And we sh- share that as proof that we're a, a good teacher for this person, right? And it's a classic marketing strategy. I think it can be very genuine, but we do have to be honest in that if we're using our stories in some way, we're kind of telling the person who's listening that it could happen to you too, right? And of course, it of course it can happen to you too. I don't that's not a lie. But to your point, Jason, I think in some cases rare. It's I, I think one of the things that I want to do moving forward in my marketing, whether we're talking about courses like the consistency code or wellness warrior training, is not to lead with this idea of like, since we did it, that guarantees that you can do it, right? Number one, none of us can guarantee anything. Or to in some way imply that it's more accessible than it actually is. And I think that's more authentic to say, I'm not going to promise you anything, Nothing is promised to any of us. And I'm definitely not going to say that if you follow my steps, you're guaranteed a result because that's not fair at all. And I'm certainly not going to shame people for not getting results if, if it doesn't work out for them. I think it's more, and perhaps this is just more of the way that I want to coach, for example, is it feels better to be there for somebody, help them along the way, cheer them on no matter what happens. And I wonder, based on my experience with a lot of clients over the years, like when somebody gives up, are they giving up because they feel shame? Are they giving up because it didn't work for them? Are they giving up because they're feeling like a failure and there must be something wrong with them as a result of this? And that's something that I've certainly felt before. You know, I think about the number of courses that I've taken and how I really expected a certain result from them because of the way that the marketing was positioned. It was saying, if you do this, then you'll get that. And when I did those things but didn't get that, I felt like a failure. And that's why someone like Lewis Howe is telling those stories. Like I immediately have a little flag that goes up where it's, again, not personal to him, but I don't trust it when people say those things because the number of times I felt let down. And that's not to say I'm not taking personal responsibility and blaming someone like that. 
it's that that like triggers me to feel like, uh oh, <laughs> I don't know about this. Like the last time I trusted somebody's word saying like, hey, I overcame this and so can you. It's, it's almost like a weight loss story too, right? That's another classic example. We see the before and after photos. And my entire life, especially when I was a little kid, I was super susceptible to those things. And I would buy the product, do the program, you know, buy the equipment, buy the foods, buy the online service or the the VHS tape way back in the day, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, great. Like, I'm just going to do these exact same fitness moves as, as them. And I'm going to do them for as long as they tell me to do them and as frequently as they tell me to do them. And I'm going to get those results. And I never got those results. So I had been carrying that burden of shame for most, if not all of my life since then, because I thought, well, how did they lose weight? How did they get those before and after photos? Why doesn't my before and after look like theirs? I think that's a huge issue. No matter if we're talking business, personal, fitness, health, whatever, to try to use our stories as if that's a guarantee someone else is going to get that same result. I mean, what we're kind of talking about is at the core these marketing strategies that are kind of as old as consumer products. I mean, if we look at the arc of advertising and marketing over history, it's very much rooted in, we know you're unhappy. We know you're not living the life you want. We know your dreams aren't coming true. So here is a appliance, car, clothing, perfume, course, book to help you get to this place you're not in because we know you're unhappy. I mean, if people were more content in their lives, you know, there would be industries that would collapse completely because they're they're predicated on making you feel some sort of inadequacy or not enoughness to sell you something to cure that or as an attempt, even though we know deep down it's not going to. We I mean, we know. Human beings, I think, right, at the core we know this thing is not going to cure it for us or give us the life we want. You know, and it's not to say that wisdom and insight and experiments and practicing and trying new things are not valuable. Of course they're valuable. But I think ultimately, to your point, Whitney, it goes back to this conversation of dreams because in some way it's like, hey, my life used to suck too. I used to be exactly where you were. And again, sleeping on a couch or sleeping in my car, doing whatever. And, and, you know, and I also realize that a lot of the trainings we've been to have kind of focused around boy, how do I even explain this? Like, you know, emotional manipulation in some ways. And it leads me to another question, Whitney, of like, what's wrong with being average? You know, I've really been thinking about this a lot lately. There, there's this script we kind of have in our, our culture, American culture in particular, of the material metrics of success. You know, you need to hit six figures, then you need to hit multiple six figures, then you need to go to seven, then you need to go to eight. I mean, it's, it's just the, the rhetoric, the 10xing, the 15xing of everything is everywhere. It's like, you need to strive for greatness. You need to strive for success. You need to strive to make your dreams come true. But as sort of like, I don't know, an antithesis to this idea, what's wrong with being average? You know, what's wrong with like living in an average house or renting an average apartment? What's wrong with like watching your average Netflix shows or getting average grades or driving an average car like I don't like a Mazda or something. Mazdas are great by the way. They're sleeper cars, punch way above their weight. They're way more than their price tag. Anyway, as an aside, 
why do we glorify this idea of like, you have to be this grand success and reach some pantheon of your existence or it's meaningless? Like, I want to go on record and say like, maybe average is, maybe average is cool. Maybe average is okay. And how does that land when I say that? Does that irksome? Does that land, Whitney, when I talk about being average? Like, what's your reaction when I bring up that word? Well, I think I read something recently about this. I wish I could remember the source, but I believe the point of whatever I read, whether it was an article or a book on the subject matter, was that there is nothing wrong with being average because the whole point of being average is that that's what the majority of people are. So when you're, quote, average, that is like defining you as not being alone. That's defining you as being amongst many other people. There's only room for one person as the winner or to get the gold medal. Like it's it's rare that multiple people get gold medals. It's rare that there are winners in the sense of like number one. Like that's the whole thing is most of the time, unless you literally tie with somebody, there's one person that's considered the best and at the top. And the same thing is true where there's one person that performs the worst, the one person that comes in last. And that too has been like a huge fear for many people is that I'm afraid of being the loser. I'm afraid of coming in last. And we look down upon that. But there's always going to be somebody who's last. There's always going to be someone that's, quote, perceived as a loser. And so in a way, being in the, in the average position, again, there's, there's truly nothing wrong with it. And I think it's a marketing tactic like we're talking about. I think it's a capitalistic mentality is if we train people to be afraid of being average, they're always going to be trying to be the best, which might serve us in some ways. But if we are in this point where we think we have to be the best and we can't settle for anything less than that, that puts a lot of pressure on us because, as we said before, sometimes there are circumstances beyond our control or circumstances that are so incredibly challenging that it would literally take everything within us to win or be the best, be number one. And is it really worth it? I mean, in our newsletter that you wrote today, Jason, you talked about how success is boring. And we've talked many times about how a lot of people can get to the top of their game and feel lonely or feel like incredibly depressed because now they're at the top and there's nowhere else to go. And now they're trying to seek another height and wonder, like, is this all there is? I just think that we have been programmed to want something without realizing that maybe what we have right now is truly good enough, right? I think it's just a matter of perception. I think it's not about settling. I think it's about being grateful for what you have and where you're at. I think it is helpful for us to push ourselves and experiment with going beyond our limits and notice how we feel. If it feels good to do that frequently, then do it. But if you're feeling drained and burnt out, or if you're feeling like the results you're getting are really not worth it. I was thinking about this the other day in terms of the bundle sale that we've been participating in. And, you know, one thing I cringe over is when these bundle sales share the metrics about like who's on top, who's the best performer, mainly because I fall into the comparison trap. But it is really interesting because sometimes they'll share these numbers and you're like, wow, like that person really must be influential because they've sold so much. And there were some people that 
I am familiar with enough that when I saw they were at the top, I was like, that's really impressive. Good, good on them. And I, I had to really be conscious about not thinking good on them, but not good on me. And then I thought instantly afterwards, there was like a gut feeling based on what I've seen about them on social media, which is all my perception and certainly isn't truly the reality of who these people are. But it doesn't seem like they're that happy, to be honest. (laughs) You know, to me, it sounds awesome to be that successful. It sounds great to get those results. And I certainly don't need to be number one, but I certainly wouldn't mind being number two, three, four, five, et cetera. You know, being somewhere up there on the top sounds good enough to me. I'd be thrilled to get those results, I think. But then I started thinking about how they're probably used to getting results like this, or possibly those results might not even be great to them relative to what they've achieved in the past. So it's that relative perception thing, because for them, that might not be that exciting. But for me, it is exciting. And I think that's the other thing that we need to reflect on is, yeah, in this case, I'm definitely underperforming somebody. I might be either the average or potentially even below average in this circumstance, right? But I'm okay with that. I'm not sitting around feeling unhappy because I know that if I were to strive for those same results, either A, I would never get them because I'm just simply not at that place yet where I could get them in the amount of time that this person has achieved them, or B, in order for me to potentially, not even guaranteed, but potentially get those same results as this other person, I would have to work probably a minimum of 10 times harder than I am. And honestly, it's not worth it to me to work that much harder. (laughs) Like I want to sleep in like I did today. I want to take breaks like I did today. I want to spend time with people I care about whether it's on the phone or, you know, in limited cases right now during COVID in person, or I want to just be able to go on a walk with my dog. But if I were to work 10 times harder, I wouldn't be able to do those things. I would be getting less sleep. I would be spending less time with people. I would be spending less time with my dog and exercising. I probably wouldn't have time to make food. Like if I look at my day right now, and add 10 times more work into it, that sounds miserable to me. And I'm not willing to do those things in order to get the results that somebody else is getting because they're not that meaningful to me. And I think that's a huge part of this equation too. You have to examine, is it really okay for you to be average or even in some cases under average simply because you prefer the lifestyle that you have and you're not willing to do what it takes because you don't want to give up what you currently have? Well, it's almost trading one pain for another. It's the pain of staying, quote, stuck if you feel stuck versus the pain of the effort is required to get you unstuck and into the next chapter or phase of your life, right? I'm not saying all life is pain. I'm not that dark or nihilistic. Maybe sometimes I am. Actually, yeah, sometimes I am, but not not on the regular. But it brings up this idea, Whitney, of, of what's well, a lot of layers to it. It's, you know, are you genuinely content where you are? 
And if so, then where does the motivation come to change or evolve? I mean, maybe it's to be of higher contribution. Maybe you just want to expand your being. Maybe it's you just want to learn for the sake of learning. You know, it's it's it reminds me of a book that I read. We'll link to in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. Again, our website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just go to the homepage and click on the podcast section. It'll take you right to the show notes for all of our episodes, including this one. The book is called Finite and Infinite Games by James Carse. And in this book, he talks about the difference between finite and infinite games in the sense that here on Earth, humans are kind of obsessed with finite games. As you mentioned, Whitney, there's a definitive winner and a whole bunch of losers or people that didn't win. Okay. There's, you know, one person gets the gold medal, one person gets MVP. You know, it's it's very much a structure of human entertainment and sport and commerce that we set things up to have very few winners and a lot of losers. His justification, though, is if we can evolve into looking at our lives in a sense of infinite games, where the point is not to win, the point is to play. The point is to experience. The point is to feel. The point is to grow, right? It's not, we're not doing it to win. We're playing a game that is creating our being, or in some lineages, they call it making a soul. Like you, you're actually creating your soul. You're creating your being as you're here. So to me, I think it's a great book because it, it kind of helps me mentally back off from, from this competitive idea that I have to win and that somehow my virtue is tied to how much of a winner I am. And that's a big thing. And we go back to societal conditioning. We go back to subconscious belief systems, which you and I love to break down here is, you know, I think about like the attitude toward like getting a C or even like a B or B minus. It's not that my my mom or my family was hardcore of you need to get straight A's. I didn't grow up in a family like that. But the general attitude, like if you got a C in school was like, ugh, a C. It's like, what, what the fuck is wrong with that? It's it's passing. It's it's an average grade. And so it's me deconstructing in real time, Whitney, this this conditioning, I think, of how much these success parameters and making our dreams come true, which are very much tied together, are desperately tied to our desire for attention, approval, significance, fame, you know, these things that that we want to fill ourselves up with, right? It's like, if I make my de- dreams come true, well, it's like, well, what does that even mean about you as a person? You're a person who made their dreams come true. Okay, so what? Does that mean you're a better person, a more virtuous person? Wow, look at that. You know, But we do, we raise people up, don't we? We, we celebrate this idea in our culture that there are very few people who make it to Hollywood. There are very few people that make it into professional sports leagues. There are very few people that get to host the Grammys, the Emmys, the Oscars. I mean, there are these vaunted categories of like, whoa, if you make it there, holy shit. And then we deify those people. Like we treat people that reach that level of success and make their dreams come true as if they're gods. Like we really do do that where where they almost stop being human and they become they become demigods and we treat them that way. It's fascinating, that part of our culture. This also reminds me of an Instagram post I saw, which I'm pulling up right now so I can get the words right. Don't let someone who gave up on their dreams talk you out of yours. And that's another side of this conversation too is, (laughs) first of all, I hope it doesn't come across like either of us are trying to talk you out of dreaming. That's certainly not the case. I think the message here is not to put pressure on yourself and feel like a failure and to step out of this capitalist perspective on things, which going back to your point, Jason, about our our school systems, 
we have to remember that our school systems are designed to train us for our work careers. You know, they're training us to wake up at certain hours. They're training us to listen to our bosses, which in, in our school is our our teachers and our principals, et cetera. And we're being conditioned into that way of life. So things like our grades are teaching us that if we don't do things the right way, then we will be shamed. We will be embarrassed. We will feel like a failure towards ourselves. We'll feel like a failure for our our parents or our parental figures. And I think there's so many things about our school systems that are really messed up. You know, the the whole thing about popularity and and the issues of bullying and and there's so many challenges at school that unfortunately because of how susceptible we are when we're kids and teenagers that stuff can be traumatizing and it can cause us to feel triggered throughout our lives if we're not mindful of it and and generally kids and teenagers don't have the tools to be mindful And they might not have great parental figures in their lives. They might not have great teachers. They might not have the tools to move through that. And so they're carrying not only that conditioning, but a lot of emotional weight throughout their whole lives. And it makes me really sad because I actually, I think I talked about this on an episode when I was in Massachusetts. I had gone to my high school and walked around the halls with one of my high school friends and saw somebody that worked at the high school who still is there. And it was so fascinating to reflect on things that were happening and how things have changed, changed, how things have stayed the same. And I just was, you know, all these memories were coming up for me and thinking about how I'm grateful not to be that young anymore. You know, (laughs) like, It's nice when you're get you feel like you're quote getting old by society standards and you have a moment to say, "You know what? I'm glad that I'm this age. I don't want to be that age anymore. That was really hard, but I didn't really have it that bad. I had a relatively privileged life. I had a stable family, loving parents, a great sister, phenomenal teachers. I lived in a wonderful town. And even with all of those things working to my benefit, I still struggled. So I can't imagine the struggles that people go through when they don't have all or most or some of those things, right? But anyways, going back to the grades, it certainly affected me, Jason. It, it certainly, in, for lack of a better word, kind of traumatized me and and the shame that I felt when I didn't get certain grades. And, and also, the consequences of that for me were not getting into the college that I really wanted to go to and feeling like, oh my gosh, like I screwed this up and I don't have an opportunity to make it up. Like speaking of dreams, I had a dream of going to a specific college because I thought that college was going to help me make my dreams come true. And when I got my rejection letter from that college, I was devastated. And granted, everything seemed to work out. You know, ironically, based on what we've been talking about today, I did go to a different college that ended up feeling like a really good fit for me. And I made the most of it. And I went and pursued my dreams and then decided I didn't even want those dreams anymore. And so it's not that big of a deal. I didn't get to go to the college I wanted to. But at the time, it did feel like a big deal. And I felt a lot of shame and sadness for not getting good grades because I thought maybe if I had gotten those grades, I would have gotten into college, right? And so a lot of that stuff probably is still buried within me. 
and conditioned me to feel that shame and embarrassment and regret anytime I, I don't live up to whatever standard or metric I'm trying to reach. When did you know that it was kind of your dream to be a filmmaker was was dying? You know, when when I know it was probably wasn't like a moment, maybe it was, I don't know. We've never really discussed your thought or your heart process around it, but you're, you know, you f- you're focusing all of this creative energy and intention and vision on, on filmmaking. But what was it sort of this longer thing wit of like, all right, I'm noticing like my interest or my passion is kind of decaying a little bit. Like, did you try and cling to it or were you very graceful and like finally letting it go? That process of knowing you didn't want to do it, it wasn't really your dream anymore. Was it painful? Was it you kind of gritting your teeth and, and trying to just claw your way through the feelings or was it just kind of a looser, lighter, like, okay, I'm done with this? I would definitely say it was looser and lighter. And, you know, I don't like the the term decay or dreams dying because it didn't feel like that at all. And I don't have good connotations with those phrases and words. But I certainly know what you mean, Jason. I, I think it was really a, more of a pivot in a transition for me. It's, it's kind of like where I'm at right now with transitioning away from being known as eco-vegan gal. You know, I just don't resonate with that name anymore. And I also recognize it's going to take me a long time to move away from that. And in terms of my filmmaking career, it just organically moved into something else. You know, I still enjoy elements of the industry and I'm grateful to know people that work in the industry. And I have opportunities to go to sets of TV shows and movies if I want. I I meet incredible people living in Los Angeles all the time. So I still feel like I can dip my toe in if I really want to again. And sometimes I think, gosh, it certainly would be nice to go back and work on set. And speaking of COVID, like going back to what we were talking about before, sadly, right now, somebody I know is working on a television show that I can't go to set for, even though like this is probably the the greatest access I've had to a production in a long time. Because of COVID, I can't go. <laughs> so it's like really annoying timing because I'd love to go to on set. You know, that was one of the things that I really loved about working in the production world is just being around creative people and watching the whole process. There's so much magic in there. I think where it didn't feel good was that, unfortunately, in order to make things work, the film industry is really intense. And, and I, it's not just film. It's television. It's, it's any sort of you know video production, film production, all of that, right? The, the medium of watching something. I have been blessed to have worked on a ton of of productions since I got passionate about it, you know, since the year 2000 was when I first started getting really into production and I spent let's see probably 10 years really heavily involved and in, on commercials and music videos, TV shows, films, you name it, and I was in all these different offices and and production centers, and I was actually going to set and doing all of these things. I saw it from many different angles. And gosh, like I've talked about this before, I think perhaps on um, our third episode when we were talking about me, <laughs> like the, our first, uh, well, our first episode of this podcast was an intro to the podcast, but our second and third episodes were about our lives. So Jason had an episode about his, I had an episode about mine. 
And I think in my episode or somewhere in one of our early episodes, I talked about how the film industry just felt kind of sad. Like it didn't have the happy feeling that I associated with production because I had been making short films for many, many years before I started, you know, made it my profession. So before college, in high school and elementary school, I was making short projects, short films, for lack of a better phrase, similar to what kids these days <laughs> would put on YouTube or TikTok, right? Like those little little silly things that you do with your siblings, your friends, like constantly, that was my life. And that's why I wanted to make that my career because I loved that more than anything else. It came natural to me. I liked coming up with ideas. I liked running productions. I loved the equipment. And I still love a lot of that. But when I started actually working on productions with other people in the year 2000, I quickly started to realize like, wow, this is hard. This is complex. This involves a lot of collaboration and working with all different personalities. This involves a lot of time and energy. You know, I remember I was in a, a summer uh, program in, in the year 2000. And here I am, like, still very young, <laughs> figuring this out and thinking, like, oh my gosh, like, I'm barely sleeping. Like, I don't like this. I was waking up crazy hours and staying up all day working on these projects. And you just get so drained by it. It was still so new to me at that time. I think I had the energy for it. But over the course of the next 10 years, I think I started to feel a little burnt out. And I also noticed that a lot of the people that work on productions didn't seem very happy. They too seemed burnt out. They seemed one of our favorite words that that Jason says often is like curmudgeons. Like you go on these sets and like people would be in horrible moods. And then not to mention working as a woman in production has also been incredibly challenging. I think it still is 10 years later, even though I haven't done much in the industry since 2010. But from my experience from 2000 to 2010, like it was hard being a female filmmaker. I was usually one of the only female filmmakers in my classes in college. I was one of the only ones that wanted to direct, uh, that knew how to edit very well. Like a lot of the kind of top tiers of that field did not have a lot of women in them. Women tend to be producers or, gosh, I'm trying to think of other roles that I would see them. I mean, I, I think maybe there were a good amount of female editors that I worked with, but directors was pretty rare. There were certainly a lot of female actors and then in various other roles. But in terms of like really strong executive level people, those they tended to be like producers or something like that. And I was I worked in all these different offices and all of these different productions and I just remember right now very strongly how unhappy people were and how I felt discarded a lot. I don't know if that was because I was a woman, people not taking me seriously, people not caring about my feelings, feeling like I was being taken advantage of. Luckily, I did not have many experiences like from a Me Too standpoint. I certainly had a few of those. None of them were extreme but definitely moments of feeling like men were trying to take advantage of me. And I luckily <laughs> did not get into really bad situations, but they were on the cusp of that. But just that general feeling of 
this feels emotionally too hard. This feels emotionally unpleasant. And that was really sad, Jason. Like it was sad to have such a deep desire and a natural talent for it, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I think some of us are maybe born or raised uh, with natural talents. And mine happens to be making video content. And that's why I still do it. You know, so going back to your to your question, Jason, of like the dream dying, I never felt like it fully died because I just started doing YouTube, right? So I'm still doing a lot of those things that I've always done. It's just that I got to do them on my own. And that felt much better to me. That felt like, oh, like I don't have to deal with all of these curmudgeons, these unhappy people, people trying to take advantage of me, people not taking me seriously. I got to kind of like pave my own path. And I think a lot of people enjoy that. But at the same time, it's nothing like being on a big set. You know, like the feeling that rush that you get when you walk onto a set of a TV show or movie is or commercial music video, whatever it is, like, it's awesome. And I've had the blessing of combining these worlds a few times. A few years ago, I was hired to be the social media director for a TV show. And that was being run by one of my friends. So I got to be on set and I loved it. But I also was like, the hours are absolutely crazy. You know, and going back to what I was saying earlier, Jason, about like, do I want to work 10 times harder and not sleep as much as I want to? Not really. I like sleeping. And (laughs) if you work in production, you have to give up sleep for a certain period of time. Like that's the way that production is. Even today, someone I know got up at 5.30 this morning, like literally the day that we're recording, got up at 5.30 this morning. It's currently almost 6.30 p.m. right now. So 13 hours later, and this person still has not returned back from set. Like those are the days, those are the common days where you wake up at the crack of dawn, you don't get home to really late, you have maybe the energy to eat something and then you crash, go to bed and wake up and do it all over again. Do I want to live that way? No, I don't. It's not worth it to me right now in my life. Well, thank you for such a deep, detailed and, you know, valuable answer to that question. I mean, it it's kind of like the thing that popped out to me, there were many points that popped out, Whitney, but this idea of like, you have the talent or the ability to do something well. But you know, that, that also doesn't guarantee anything either. It's basically like, look, you can have the advantages and the privilege and the status and the ability and the talent. But it goes back to this idea, wrapping back to dreams coming true, there's no guarantee of anything. You know, I remember, wow, this is an interesting uh, memory. There was a documentary. I cannot for the life of me recall what the name of it was, but it was back in the 90s. And it was a documentary that was covering the explosion of the Seattle music scene. And Seattle had always had a, a really good jazz scene. And Quincy Jones came up from there. Ray Charles was in Seattle for a while. Jimi Hendrix. Like Seattle had always had a good musicians there, but in the 90s, we know with grunge and you know the big bands that came out like Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, there was a documentary talking about how this scene had coalesced, the people who had get, kind of given birth to it. And there was an interview segment where Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of Pearl Jam, was on a couch and he was, someone had asked him, you know, why do you think you guys made it? You know, like, why you? 
And he had a really, I just thought for me all these years later, such an eloquent, honest answer where he's like, dude, we're no better or worse than dozens and dozens and dozens of bands in the city. And he was listing off people they had toured with, people they'd opened for that were nowhere near the level of success of Pearl Jam. He's like, all of them are very deserving to get to the level we're at. You know, the, the, musically, they're as talented, the songwriting, all those things. They just, those bands just never became Pearl Jam, right? But his point was like, why was it us? How the fuck should I know? Like any of these other guys are just as amazing, you know? And I think back to the mus- just musicians I've played with. And some in particular were like, I can't believe how good you are. Like a level of mastery on bass or guitar or piano that you witness it and you're like, I can't even, it's stupefying and transmogrifying and transcendent how good these people are. Did they quote, make it to that level? No. And so it's like, I I don't, what, what is my fucking point? I guess my point is like, we can have all our proverbial ducks in a row and it still doesn't guarantee we're going to get to that level. Even if we have all of the mechanics and talent and advantages in place, Whitney, you know? which is kind of maddening in a way. Because you think if I just practice my ass off, if I just make the right connections, if I just meet the right people, get the right manager, get on the right record label. I mean, there's a quadrillion examples of all of those things being in place and the thing you want still not happening. And I guess it goes back to maybe we have no idea why things happen or why people get certain status or riches or placement in society when there are other people as talented or deserving as them. Who knows? I think there's a spiritual or mystical element to all of this we can't really explain, you know, of why certain people become successful, influential, famous, whatever, and other people don't that are just as equally talented or amazing. It's a really, it, it's almost beyond explanation. Do you have any reflections on that? Clearly, I don't if I'm not saying anything. <laughs> well, I can't type. So Whitney and I have a, have, a, have a chat box here in Zencaster, the program we use to uh, record your podcast that you're hearing, dear listener. And there's a chat functionality in the bottom. And sometimes when, when one of us makes a comment, we'll wait for the other person to respond. And if they don't, we'll type in the chat box. But I'm only one-handed today. So it's, it, takes a, <laughs> it takes a really long amount of time for me to type anything one-handed on a keyboard. So that's why I was kind of like, hmm, am I going to attempt to take five minutes to type something or <laughs> just like, I don't know. You know what? We just, we work with what we've got. And the fact that I'm walking through life one-handed right now is, is frustrating because I feel like part of this conversation maybe is like my life's being put on hold. Like I'm not being able to do as many things as I'm normally able to do. I'm not able to teach guitar lessons. I'm not able to play guitar. I'm not able to work on music. I'm not able to work out. I was kind of talking today with my mom, Wit, who recently broke her leg. So we're both we're both healing and have extra metal in our bodies right now. That, you know, it's extra challenging because I'm not able to do a lot of the things that bring me joy, you know, of music and playing an instrument or even working out or even, I don't know, being as physically into movement as I normally can because my body won't allow it. So it's a little bit extra tough right now mentally for me to pursue things or do things that I want to do because I'm not physically able to do them. You know, that's kind of an offshoot of like maybe this dream conversation, but it's been, it's been challenging to be like, no, we're not going to, we actually can't do that right now. So get really good at using your left hand, dude. Do we have any product shout outs for the week, Whitney. Anybody on the top of your mind you want to give some love to? Wow. You know, I wasn't prepared, funny enough, because we got out of the flow with that during 
our promotion of our own course. So we took a little break from promoting other products so we could promote ourselves. So I mean, the ads actually that we did are no longer there anymore. So if you missed them, I think we should we can still remind people of the consistency code, our course. It's it's no longer on sale, at least it shouldn't be. It, it could be depending on when you listen to this, you know, but we run sales on the consistency code maybe once a year, maybe twice. We'll see. But right now it is still available for you to purchase at full price. And I've really gained a greater appreciation for our course. So it was really fun to give it some more love and attention. In terms of other brands, I feel like I always have more. Oh, I have one. Okay, great. I just thought about this. I'm going to finish my sentence and then I'll share the product. I was going to say, I have more products to shout out than I know what to do with. So it's it's not usually a matter of if I have a brand I want to promote, but more which one do I pick. And if I'm not prepared, I get a little overwhelmed. But luckily, one immediately came to mind, which is based on their massive generosity. <laughs> I got a really heavy package delivered the other day of six cartons of oat milk, which was very, very exciting to me because oat milk feels like the biggest indulgence since I started experimenting with the vegan keto diet. That was like two and a half years ago. It was in mid-2018, and I loved eating keto. I went or I basically put it on pause in 2020 during the pandemic because I just wanted to eat so many carbs because that made me uh, feel good <laughs> during days where I was feeling really drained by the intense energy of this year. And so I started giving myself permission <laughs> to indulge in oat milk again, which is higher in carb and the reason I hadn't had it in a while. And oh my gosh, I have so much appreciation for good oat milk now. I have tried a lot of them over the last few months, mainly in coffee, and I got sent this case of six cartons of, it's one of those names that I was like, is this the name of the company? <laughs> like, am I making up the name of this company? <laughs> is it in hieroglyphics? Okay, the name was, I had like a brain fart. I could see the packaging, but like the words I almost had, like, what is it when you can't read properly? Dyslexia? Yes, exactly. I had like, I don't have dyslexia, but I, I just had a moment where I'm like, am I mixing up the letters in this company's name? That was really funny. And no offense to them, because obviously I love them enough to be talking about them. The company is called Minor Figures. And one of the things I love about them is the simplistic packaging. And it's very creative at the same time. It's like a a person, I don't know if it's a woman or a man, this person has long hair and is wearing sunglasses and they're in a duck costume. And I'm also, I'm not quite sure why. I, I want to go to their website now, but they have phenomenal oat milk. I know I've tried it before, I remember very vividly trying at the Los Angeles Coffee Festival that I went to in 2019, which was so much fun. And one of those things that I feel really sad that I don't get to experience right now during 2020 when all these events have been canceled. But anyways, I tried Minor Figures, loved it. And then they reached out to me recently and asked if they could send me some oat milk. I thought they were going to send me like one carton of it. No. No. They were insanely generous and they sent me six cartons of it. 
And Jason, I had a moment where I thought, I'm going to give Jason one of these cartons of oat milk. (laughs) And then I selfishly decided, nah, I'm going to keep it all to myself. Yeah. Well, guess what? (laughs) Do they send you some too? Yeah, they did. (laughs) They did. So I'm good, Whitney. (laughs) But now you're caught in not sharing it with me either. Nah. COVID, COVID, COVID. You couldn't have come over anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Please, as if that stops us. We found very creative ways to share products during COVID. But I'm glad that you got some too, Jason. So now you can back me up. And and, and I'm, I'm amazed that you didn't jump in as soon as I started talking about them to rescue me from my brain fart. I didn't. Well, when you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when you said you had trouble pronouncing it, I thought it was going to be some funky, like, you know, oat milk. I don't think I said that I couldn't pronounce it. I was afraid that I was going to say the wrong name. Right. And so therefore, I thought that it was going to be something more complex than minor figures. I, I don't know. For some reason, my mind went to a totally different thing. Their oat milk is really, really good. I got to give them props. And you can see what I mean. Like minor figures doesn't seem like the name of an oat milk. That's why I was like second guessing it for a second in my head. I'm no, like, it sounds like a it, like an indie punk band from Baltimore. And it looks like that too. That's a great way to describe it because it it really does look like. And if you go on their website and and look in their about page, the staff does look like members of an indie band. So they kind of nailed it. Well, props to minor figures for hooking us up with gallons. Of literally gallons. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Gallons. You guys make good stuff. It's really good. Yeah. It's nice to see it. I've I've used it hot and I've used it as a base for smoothies. And in both applications, it seems to thrive. So I think the the mark of a really good milk, culinarily speaking, is of course the taste and the body and the mouthfeel, right? The actual experience of it, but how it performs, right? Can you make a roux with it? Can you make a stew with it? Can you boogaboo with it? Can you make a smooth? Can you? <laughs> How versatile is it? Is what I'm saying. So props to minor figures. Are you are you done gushing on them, Whitney? Do you have anything else to add? No, I'm just grateful for it. And it's funny because I keep like trying to think of things that I can do with it besides putting in in lattes. I'm not as creative as you, Jason. Uh, but mainly, I just want to use it for drinks. And I am slowly but surely walk, working on my coffee ebook, which I've been dragging my feet on for some reason. Uh, but a little teaser here that I do intend to complete a book about coffee and different recipes and different milks and whatever else. And, and I, I think I'm getting way too in my head about it. So I'm trying to get a little bit more simple and just get it done and then maybe expand upon it later because I have a tendency to get into analysis paralysis or into this perfectionist trap where nothing ever feels good enough. And I think really too big in terms of my dreams to tie it back in. But because I love this milk so much, sometimes after my coffee cutoff time, which is usually 4 p.m., I feel sad that I can't use it until the next day. So I've been trying to think of like other drinks, like should I make tea lattes with it or hot chocolate? And just talking about it right now makes me want to go whip up something after we finish recording. You reminded me of an Usher song. Ooh, you make me want to whip the oat milk, start a new beverage with you. This is what you do. Shout out to Usher. We'll have you one day, bud. And we'll share the secret of We'll share our Usher secrets with you, Usher. 
our celebratory usher song and dance whenever we have big wins in life. That's going to be cut. We've talked about that before, haven't we? On the show, Whitney, our, our usher thing, or have we never mentioned it publicly? I don't recall. No. So every time we get a big win in life, we send each other memes of usher often accompanied by his number one hit yeah with little john or we will just call each other up and leave each other random voice messages that go boop beep boop beep boop beep beep boop and we just know that that's code language for something good has happened okay so when something good has happened usher is brought into the conversation that's all you need to know speaking of good things entering the conversation i have a shout out whitney it's an old friend of ours that has come out with something new that I actually am very pleased with and I have been probably eating too much of lately, to be honest. Outstanding Foods, we've talked about them, I think, maybe previously, we've, or maybe we haven't on the podcast. I can't remember what the hell we say. We're like 155 episodes deep. <laughs> I have to say that this is one of those products I was really annoyed that you didn't share with me. Oh, I have some here, though. Well, I would like to acquire some of this. Well, you know because- where I live, so... But like you said, COVID. Well, I can leave them in the the mid gate where the the concrete, the cannon wall is, where the cannon. Or we could meet in the middle. Or I can just toss it to you with my left arm, the arm that works and see how far I could get. Or we could meet in the middle because you live really far away from me. Nah, I can't drive. I didn't know that you couldn't drive. No. I have a st- So spoiler alert, I have a stick shift. I can't use my right arm to shift. So I literally cannot drive right now. It's the only time I'm regretting having a stick shift. If I had an automatic, I could drive. Time to get that Tesla, Jason. Time to get that Tesla. Or time to request that your lovely girlfriend drops off some of these crunchy snacks you're about to talk about. That's true. So crunchy snacks. We've teased you long enough. They're called takeout. And they are, in my opinion, their version of a healthy superfood Cheeto. They're shaped like Cheetos. They have a crunch and a mouthfeel like Cheetos. That snappy, crispy light, airy Cheeto thing, but they have incredible flavors. I actually will go on record and say, I like these better than the pig out chips. Personally, I love the fact that they have shiitake mushroom and broccoli and kale and they're high in protein. They have your recommended daily requirements of magnesium and vitamin D and iron. And they're really, really actually the nutrition profile is quite impressive. And they're marketing it as like, if you had to miss a meal, you could eat a bag of these and get your nutritional requirements. So it is kind of like, yeah, a superfood, healthy, vegan Cheeto. They have the ranch. It's it's tough, man. They've got four flavors that I've tried that are so good. They have the ranch. They have the hella hot. They have the pizza parte. And then they have the white cheddar. And I, again, have just been plowing through bags of these. I do have unopened bags to share with you, Whitney. But so far, they're my absolute favorite products Outstanding Foods has released, and uh, and I hope that they're going to be very successful with it because I think it's a great product. Even better than their OG chips that they had, which I agree. I think the current like pigless pig rinds, not as good as the OG, which was... Do they even make those anymore, Jason? What, what were they called? Those were made from, I believe, King Oyster Mushrooms. And I think what happened was that the process of making them was either too difficult to scale to like millions of bags or it was somehow cost prohibitive. I I don't know what the actual story is. I'm not, I haven't signed an NDA either. So I hope I'm not sharing any trade secrets, but I think they moved away from mushrooms because it just wasn't scalable is what I, I heard. But I do miss those original chips. Those original chips were 
I remember when you first brought those to YouTube space, Whitney was organizing a really incredible creator's mastermind for about a year, I think, almost at uh, the YouTube space LA, which is a really amazing production facility where if you're a YouTuber with a certain number of followers and you go through the course, you have access to the space. We have not been in a long time hashtag COVID. But you brought those there, Whitney, when we had those groups. And I remember people losing their shit when you brought those chips. Except one of our friends who will remain nameless is complaining that they are too salty. I remember that. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, these are so good. And I don't know why I can't remember what they were called. They had a name, but I don't know what it was. It was like, nope, can't remember. But they were basically like bacon chips. Yeah, they were bacon. Yeah, exactly. That's not what they were called, but they tasted like dried bacon, but were completely plant-based. And they were magical. And it's exciting to see that they have added another product to their line. And yeah, I can't wait to try them, Jason. So I really hope that you save them for me and we find a way to coordinate a pickup. We'll figure it out. But I my... my We'll figure that out before I figure out my transportation future. That's a whole nother conversation. But in the meantime, for you, dear listener. Wait, 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 what? wait. Are we not wrapping up? No, I, we are going to wrap up, but I have one more point. Oh. Because speaking of dreams dying, Jason, you had a dream way before me of getting a Tesla. And... I'm curious, has that dream died? Is it on hold? Like, would you rather wait and get a different Tesla than they currently offer? Do you want a completely different car? Like, I'm curious where you're at with that because you've also talked a lot about selling your current car. So I'm wondering, is life now presenting you with an opportunity to sell your car and your motorcycle? And in that case, do you think that you'd be able to make a Tesla finally happen, even if it was like a used Tesla? Okay, so there's a lot of questions in there. Is the dream of owning one over? No. Do I feel as much of a sense of urgency to have one as I used to? I do not. Do I feel like my sense of self-worth or proving to other people that I'm this great success because of the car I drive, which was intertwined in that because of my conditioning of growing up in Detroit and the family I did and pretty much like your car defines you, that type of thing. I don't feel that. It's like, okay, if I get one, I get one. And if I don't, I don't. Am I going to have a great life either way? Am I going to have a life filled with love and companionship and sweetness and connection and pain and suffering and every other human emotion? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's weird for me to say this as someone who loves cars and the art of automobile design and the art of performance and loves driving cars and taking cars to the track. I mean, I'm just... That's probably my material obsession, right? I don't really give that much of a shit about much else, materially speaking, but I love cars. And I'm at the point now, Whitney, where I feel like I'm less obsessed with this idea of having a certain car than I am like when the moment comes when I need something new, I'll evaluate what my desires and my passions are then, right? Rather than like thinking about it now, the reality is I was barely driving before the motorcycle accident. Now I'm not driving at all. I literally do not know when I will be able to drive my car again because of the use of my right arm being being limited. So, yeah, I mean, for me to sell my car, sell my motorcycle, could I get something new? Yes. Should I get something new? Mm, not right now. No, I'm barely driving. So for me to justify a sizable car payment at this point on a Tesla or something else 
it doesn't make any financial sense for me to do it because I wouldn't be utilizing it. The thing I would be paying for would be sitting in my garage more than it would be being used. And that doesn't sit, sit well with me. So when and if the time comes that I want something new and it's practical and makes sense because of the amount of driving I'm going to do, then absolutely. But I think the long answer is I haven't given up the dream and it's not that important to me as it used to be. And also for me to get something brand new right now, it just makes zero sense because I bear, again, I barely drive and don't know when I'm going to be driving regularly again. Well, fair enough. It's just so interesting <laughs> that I was not super excited about Tesla. The reason I started thinking about getting a Tesla was because of you, Jason. You also convinced me in some ways to get a Fiat, which was my first electric car. I loved that car. It was really great. And I wish that I could combine that Fiat with a Tesla, because that would be like my ideal car. I love my Model 3, but I really enjoyed having a smaller car, except on my road trip. <laughs> of course, my road trip was amazing in the Model 3. And I started to get really envious of the Model Y and was lusting after getting that car until recently a report came out saying that the Model 3 is is a safer car. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm good with my car for now. But it is just interesting, Jason, how you were gung-ho, like you were committed to getting that Model 3. And then that just kind of dissipated for a little while. And I fully support you. I mean, it's a big financial decision, of course. And it's one of those interesting things for me where I don't really think about it that much. It's just part of my bills. Even though it is expensive, my brain has adapted to it. It's just part of my monthly expenses. And sometimes I think like, gosh, it certainly would be nice not to have this expensive car. But I love that car. And um, I hope that you one day... Do get one if you still really want one, because I think that you would love it, too. It would just be so fun like to share that Tesla love with you, Jason, and finally see that happen for you. Well, maybe it will happen one day. I, you know, Again, we have no idea what's coming or what's waiting for us. That is certainly one of the things we like to talk about here on the podcast and getting really uncomfortable with our lives is admitting the uncertainty of life and not knowing what's coming for us. So it may or may not happen. I don't I don't feel as strong of an attachment to it happening. And I also you know for me to take on any expenses in in life, I'm just kind of in the mindset of is it useful for me to do that right now? You know, and when and if the time comes when it is useful for me to take on another car payment of that kind of size and scope, I'll absolutely do it, you know, and I know that the right car at the time will will present itself to me. And maybe it's also too that, you know, I'm not like super on fire about making that happen in my life. And I know that there's a certain level of focus and will and energy that I have noticed in my life, Whitney, as we wrap up this episode, that when I'm really super connected to something and passionate and feel it in my heart and feel a sense of really deep unbridled joy, that thing tends to manifest in some form. Maybe not the exact form I intended it, but I've just noticed that for me to put the energy into life that is required to magnetize or bring things to me, if the heart and the passion and the connection and the excitement for the thing isn't there, it's really hard to make it happen. You know, So I, I think whether that's something, we go back to this original point of this episode being about dreams, that it requires effort and consistency and experimentation and the willing to get the shit kicked out of you and get back up and get your shit kicked out of you again and get back up again and persistence and determination and a willingness to change and evolve. Like whatever we're talking about, a personal, a professional, spiritual goal, 
it's going to take work, you know? We're living in this bizarre society that tells us if we don't master something after one, two, three, four, five, ten tries, then we failed at it. And it's not true. So for me, it's like the right car, the right thing, the right whatever is going to come along when it's time. And I think I'll know it when it comes. But I think I'm just done trying to force things, Whitney, and I'm done trying to prove to other people how important and significant and worthy of love I am. I'm like, I think part of like my transformation personally right now is like letting go of all that, you know, and I think it's affecting my choices in a lot of ways, in good ways, to be honest. I want to simplify my life, minimize my life, not be so obsessed with material things. And I don't know where it's all leading. But then again, none of us know where anything's leading. And that is the point of the podcast, dear listener. We are here at the finish line. We want to thank you for always diving in the deep end with us because we don't know where we're going with these conversations. We're exploring it and experimenting and sharing our souls in real time with you. So we appreciate your willingness to navigate these waters, these unknown waters with us. If you want to go deeper, you can go to our website. It's wellevator.com. Again, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We have free resources for you. There are some incredible eBooks and guides and two of our flagship programs that Whitney mentioned, the Consistency Code and also Wellness Warrior Training. We're posting a lot more on our Instagram account and our TikTok and our social media handles. So check us out at Wellevator. And if you want to hit us up directly, our email is hello at wellevator.com. We've got a lot more incredible guests coming for you soon. So if you've not subscribed or left us a review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. We always appreciate that. And I think that's it for now. We'll catch you with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable Soon. And I'm going to go ice my shoulder and have some mashed potatoes. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 